Welcome to Surviving Society and Red Pepper's podcast collaboration, Beyond the Strikes. In these episodes, we speak to workers across the NHS, schools, railways and Royal Mail. This series places industrial action into wider debates about public ownership, working conditions, the economy, neoliberalism and, of course, capitalism. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find the link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome to Surviving Society. I'm really excited today to be in the studio with Lydia Hughes, who is a former head of organising at the IWGB Union and editor at Notes from Below and Red Pepper. Lydia is the author of Troublemaking, Why You Should Organise Your Workplace. So Lydia has also organised with foster care workers, delivery riders, cleaners and security guards. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, so happy to be here. <laughs> and secondly, we have John Hendy in the building, our first ever Woo-hoo. member of the House of Lords, I think, on Surviving Society. Uh, so yeah, John is a member of the House of Lords and and chair at the Institute of Employment Rights. John has a long history in the union movement and was heavily involved in developing the industrial relations legal strategy for and with the Corbyn project. John is also an English barrister and politician practising in employment and industrial relations law. Hello, John. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. And last but not least, guest producer and my co-host for this season, Liam. Liam, thank you so much for sitting next to me and joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, the series in general is looking at the recent wave of industrial action we've seen in the UK. um, And today's episode is going to be an introduction. So how should we understand the kind of recent increase in union action we've seen? What legal frameworks are the unions operating in? How is that changing and how do the unions relate to kind of the left more widely, the Labour Party social movements? Um, and that's why we have John and Lydia here who can speak to both ends of that. I'm excited to have a trade union focus series on Surviving Society because I want to learn more about the, the structures of the unions. Like I feel like I'm obviously very much invested, very much a critical friend, but also get a bit annoyed with the unions very annoyed and I kind of don't even know how to articulate like where that annoyance comes from so I'm very excited to be learning um from you all today it'd be really great just start with you Lydia how did you get into your organizing I'd been an activist for many years Mm -hmm. I'd done every single like A to B march was always there showing up Mm. but fundamentally like felt so powerless and really like felt like every single march I went on it just did not fundamentally tipped the balance of power in a meaningful way at all and so when I connected with some cleaners at my university and then I helped them organize their struggle we went had amazing picket lines the most vibrant picket lines you've ever had Mm -hmm. like Zumba classes face painting it was so much fun and some of the most like militant trade unionists I've ever met and and through that struggle helping them and working with them I just developed this analysis that this is what we need to do. This is where we need to build power to 
fundamentally win what we want, our demands. And they ended up winning, you know, not just the parity of conditions with the in-house staff because they were outsourced, employed by a third company, but they ended up getting rid of outsourcing altogether, which was amazing. They're now directly employed by the university and have huge improvements in paying conditions. And the militancy and the power that they held just fully convinced me that this is, you know, to win any demand beyond just pay and conditions, this is where we need to put our, our focus. Lydia, seeing your smile and like the kind of hope and happiness just kind of emanates from you. And it's like, oh, I want to do this. This is, this is amazing. I feel so like, much hope and happiness. Yeah, it really, really like, like your aura yeah, is so clear. Yeah, I keep talking to Labour Party people who are like, guys, we just need to keep ticking over. Like, it's all about defeat. And I'm like, what? Come on, guys. Mm. There's so much to win. And we're in a really exciting moment. So I feel great. Oh, I love that, Lydia. <laughs> and John? You mentioned technical words that are used in the labour movement. One of them is organise. Oh. Organise has got a specific meaning. It means recruiting people into a trade union and organising them to act collectively where they can exert more strength than they could individually. Love that. Okay. We've set the tone for the episode. I'm loving this. <laughs> Collectivity, solidarity, organising. All those great things. Yeah. John, what about yourself? Lords, barrister? Oh, well, I, I, it really comes from my study of law. I, I realised the only thing I was interested in was... Uh, what we call labour law, which is the law of the workplace. Uh, it, it's the place where capital and labour comes into confrontation in, in the law. And uh, I thought to myself, well, if I can't do this for a living, I'm going to get out and do something else. But if I'm going to be a lawyer, this is the area that I want to practice in. So consequently, I've spent most of my life on trade union matters, industrial action, rule books, and all that sort of thing. I'm just 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 before we get into it John I'm really intrigued because as a lawyer or when you're training there's so many different routes that you can go into some that are more lucrative than others and I'm always interested in when people have taken a route which is much more kind of based on improving human conditions when it comes to this kind of profession so was you never allured to like other other um routes into law like what was it about what was it about the labour law that you were interested in? No, I've never really been interested in tax or companies or yeah. Or <laughs> I, I mean, when I started at the bar, I did a few sort of uh, family matters and just emotionally draining. Mm. And, um, no, I've just not been interested in, in anything else other, other than the, the area where a worker's uh, can exert some influence over uh, terms and conditions and so on. I mean, I, you know, I have done other things. I've done mm. railway crash inquiries and Lackanell House fire inquiry and stuff like that, yeah. but, uh, which have been very interesting. But yeah. At the end of the day, it's, it's uh, industrial relations that really intrigues me. John, you've obviously been involved in the kind of legal framework around unions for a long time, and they obviously are still operating in that environment. So kind of the consensus set down by Thatcher, but I don't think a lot of people really understand 
the parameters of how the unions operate. And obviously we've seen uh, with the Tory government at the moment, they've made a lot of reference to European standards when they're introducing the minimum strikes bill, um, which is obviously nonsense. But I was wondering if you could kind of give a brief overview of kind of like the main restrictions that the unions have on them, going back to maybe Thatcher and running through to today. That's obviously a big question, but Mm. I think it's important to understand maybe looking at the recent wave of action while we haven't seen so much historically and part of that is the law part of that is obviously the unions themselves which we'll get into um but you're the man to ask i guess so (laughs) this lecture normally takes about an hour and a half (laughs) we start with the uh building of the pyramids there are hieroglyphs which show that the first recorded strike was three thousand years ago but um no, if we go back to more recent times, or or at least the beginning of the 20th century, from the three quarters of the last century, there was a stability about industrial relations law. There were hiccups between the general strike and the end of the Second World War, and again, 1970 to 1974. But basically, it was trade unions had the freedom to represent and defend their members in a very similar way to the rest of Europe. But what happened in 1979 when Mrs. Thatcher was elected was that, as in the United States with uh, President Reagan, they introduced this philosophy of neoliberalism, which is um, uh, really goes back to sort of 19th century capitalism, red in tooth and claw, very, very aggressive. And the view of trade unions were was that Uh, Trade unions are entirely permissible organisations as long as they're not doing anything that might confront capitalism. So if they're organising cheap mortgages or free uh, or cheap holidays or insurance, that's that's all very well. Or even education, that's fine. But once they are involved in collective bargaining, in in other words, focusing the collective strength of of workers in improving at least defending their terms and conditions, then the neoliberals and Thatcher and so on regarded that as a distortion of the labour market, which should be left to be free competition between workers competing amongst each other to work on the lowest possible wages, terms and and conditions. So that, that philosophy led the Tories to introduce five separate acts of parliament which imposed many many restrictions each one building on the last on the ability of trade unions to defend uh, and improve the terms and conditions of of their uh, members and the current state of affairs is that well Tony Blair described it as long ago as 1997 as the most restrictive laws on trade unions in the Western world, and and he was absolutely absolutely right about that. We do have the most restrictive laws on trade unions, and that's why trade unions are have been in a very weak position and have been unable to uh, really defend the interests of the working class. And what we've got now, of course, is is workers who are so desperate, seeing that their real the value of their real wages has diminished since 2008 and the cost of living has increased. Uh, as we all know, price of food up 19%, mm. cost of living generally over 10, 10% per annum. Uh, people are so desperate that they feel they've got no alternative but to take 
strike action and the unions now have, have managed to overcome the thresholds and the notice requirements and all the other paraphernalia of, of organising uh, a lawful a lawful strike. Saw you speak at a rally recently, an Enough is Enough rally, where you said something to the effect of a strikes bill, which is currently going through Parliament, which will basically implement minimum levels of staffing on strike days, won't be defeated by kind of the House of Lords. It will be defeated by people in the streets and kind of rebuilding union power. And I guess this is maybe where you can come in as well, Lydia, about the law is obviously extremely important and the unions have to operate within that. But historically, when the union movement has made massive gains, they have worked to a certain extent outside of the parameters set by the state. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how, how we could rebuild that kind of mass movement um, and where you see the unions at the moment mm. in relation to that. Yeah, absolutely. Just to kind of put it in some context from an organiser's perspective as well, having one of these legally protected strikes involves you know this hugely expensive balloting process each ballot you see in the news will have cost unions hundreds of thousands of pounds got to reach a 50 percent turnout and then you need a yes vote as well and then you have to tell the employers two weeks in advance you're actually going to strike hence like allowing employers to make huge adjustments in those two weeks and from an iwgb perspective in terms of organizing with low-wage and precarious workers. This hugely discriminates against young, precarious migrant workers. Anyone who regularly moves house is probably not going to receive their ballot. We sometimes had ballots of even 100 security guards, and we were lucky if 50% of ballots even arrived at people's doorsteps, let alone were returned. It is an incredibly significant moment that this strike action has taken place. It's really important to note that. But lots of this, I think, hinges on creating that power at what we would call in the union movement the rank and file, which is the the lay member of a union. So it's the member who works in the depot or the office or whichever workplace you come from. Um, And it's about rebuilding the power there to push the union leadership and also push the employer. It's a dual fight in that way. Um, and I think the the recent strikes have really come primarily from pressure from above, I would say, for, for um, union leaderships at this crisis of uh, cost of living. Um, I think union leadership's been forced into action, but in my analysis, not so much from members being organised and making it happen, but because the situation is so bad in terms of real-term pay cuts. Um, so yeah, I'd bring it back to that organising at the base, the rank and file members is so important. You've obviously written quite a lot about this in your book. Shout yeah. out. <laughs> you're <Nice>. welcome. <laughs> um, and you've cut your analysis, if I've got it correct, is that after the Corbyn movement was defeated, the left should turn its attention basically to the unions in a nutshell. <laughs> so I wonder what you make of the current kind of setup of the Labour Party. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on this as well, John, where they aren't very worker friendly obviously Starmer banned shadow cabinet ministers from going on picket lines they have said they will repeal a couple of the anti-union laws but they're not going to do anywhere near as much of a fundamental shift as we need so is your message one of simply that we should stop focusing on the kind of tweaks that the Labour Party are going to be doing and engaging much more in the unions and the struggle there I would say it comes back to the question of power again it's the same analysis we had in the Corbyn moment and the Corbyn defeat the analysis after that which is 
to make Corbyn a success or to be able to you know keep him in power we needed a really strong base of organized workers organized in the sense that John has described um, using their power in workplaces to create pressure and leverage and you know whether we had Corbyn or not which we now don't we need that power and that pressure still so our argument very much in the book is that as socialists we need to be focusing on building power at the site where we come into most direct conflict with capitalism which Mm. is in the workplace Um, and we're not just building power to kind of create small tweaks in terms of pay and conditions we're building power because climate change because we're fighting for example when the black lives matter movement really kicked off again in 2020 we as trade unionists in the workplace should be using our power there to force the demands of the movement so that's our argument i think yeah i would only add to that that uh, that the 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 two uh, roots of the political and the industrial are not not mutually exclusive so the trade unions uh, Obviously, you've got to organise in, in the workplaces and amongst the rank and file and on the subjects that uh, Lydia identifies. But, but they also uh, have got to keep the pressure on the politicians as, uh, as well, both to resist the wave of authoritarian, retrogressive legislation that's going through at the present time, and also to keep pressure on the Labour Party to maintain its commitments to reverse the industrial relations law that we've suffered under for the last um, more than 40 years. And the the Labour Party does have a program called the New Deal for Working uh, People, which was uh, uh, written essentially by a group of of trade union representatives. I was one of the advisors to that group under the chairpersonship of Andy MacDonald MP. It was it was uh, agreed by the Labour Party conference in 2021, re-endorsed in 2022, and it's still live as far as I'm aware. But the, <laughs> but it's absolutely crucial that the trade union movement keeps the pressure on, so there's no retreat from the principles that are that are set out in it, which would reverse the the uh, restrictive laws that we've got at the present time and give unions and workers more effective rights uh, rights at work. I'm not in any way playing devil's advocate here. I'm talking as someone that's trying to be representative of people that don't necessarily understand or follow the trade union movement, even though they definitely benefit from the work that you all do. So what do we do about the PR of tra- trade union movements, particularly at a time when you've got both a media and a government that are so anti the union movement? Like the normalisation of having a go at people going on strike, basically, mm. is, is very, is more, I think it's the most widespread I've seen in my lifetime. I'm only 30. So it might be, John, that you could come in on this, like the kind of union bashing that we see now both in the government but also in the media like how are we to respond to this in a meaningful way well i i, th- I think one of the things is that pe- people need to be educated yeah. about what trade unions are i i heard an interview on the on the today program this morning with pat cullen the uh, general secretary of the uh, the uh, royal college of nursing uh, 
trade union and she was introduced as the boss of the of that union the boss <laughs> and that's the very subtly that's the message that's put across the working people that trade unions are, are somehow leader-led organizations that dictate to their members whereas the trade unions and the trade union activities that Lydia's talking about is the absolute reverse of that mm. it's ordinary working people getting together to say we've had enough of this we, we've got to do something get the union involved get the official down here and we'll tell the official what they're going to do about it we want to go on strike because the management are simply not listening to us it's that sort of thing once people understand that the power is actually in their hands they haven't got to wait for mm. for the general secretary to tell them what to do and of course the the case of the royal college of nursing is a very good one isn't it because mm. the leadership of the royal college of nursing advised the members to accept the deal that was on offer from the from the government and the members voted to say no we don't want it. Mm. You've got to go back and ask for more. Oliver Twist. Mm. I mean, uh, that great. was amazing. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a PR disaster in unions. I think we yeah. can say that. Yeah. Of yeah. we probably don't do much to help ourselves either. I don't know. I'm just putting why I'm putting me in this as well. <laughs> but I think we really need to. We've had a terrible issue in the union movement for years of disregarding lots of less established workers who often tend to be women, migrants, who are, tend to be very marginalised in the eco economy as a whole as well. So I think it's about pushing for that politics from the bottom as well. Getting involved, having those conversations one by one, convincing people and convincing them to join. I wish I could say there was some catch-all, oh, there's this one simple trick and then everyone will change their minds about unions. But in reality, we just have to go workplace by workplace convincing people, recruiting people, and the transformation that happens in people who've been through a wave of strikes and struggle is phenomenal. I, I thank you both for those answers. I think they're, they're really great answers. And I, I totally agree, like politica, political education for the masses, like it's such an important part of the work we do here. I guess one of the reasons why I find it frustrating that the PR for trade unions is so bad is that it means that we can't do that kind of inward work like on the left or within trade unions, which would help us deal with some of the issues that you raised, Lydia. I'm, in particular, I'm thinking about like race and racism. Like, mm. I think that the unions have a long history, which is not necessarily um, the most positive when it comes Absolutely. to yeah structures of, of race, class, ethnicity. And I think that we're constantly kind of on the back foot trying to promote actually like this is the union is for good it doesn't allow us to do that work that inward looking work and that's what kind of concerns me maybe more so than the PR really yeah I guess I would say on the previous point there there's a constructed ignorance around trade unions if you think back to like the 70s or the 80s the number of industrial correspondents that were working in the mainstream media would have been like 50 or 60 so people had a much wider understanding of mm. unions what they were doing what they're up to and now there's hardly any there might be one bloke who works for the associated press and a couple in the left wing kind of smaller outlets so i think it is very hard for people to to understand what the unions are and that they actually aren't a separate body they are just a collection of workers because i think that distinction mm. is often used yeah. you see it on the media look the union as opposed to you know they're just it's just yeah. the workers taking that point further i mean that it's not so much the union's f pr failure it's the failure of the media 
to say anything about unions at all. I mean, mm. they are completely blacked out of, of the media, aren't they? And, mm. and the government is exactly the same. If there's consultation about anything, they never ask the trade unions for, for their view. So it, it's difficult for ordinary people who are not involved to understand what trade union and trade unions are actually doing. But there have been some notable successes, haven't they? I mean, people have given uh, Mick Lynch, for example, uh, of the RMT, a sort of rapturous welcome because <laughs> apart from anything else, he always says, well, it's not me, it's the members, which is, which is exactly the message that needs to, to be got across. I'm glad you brought up the example of the RMT because just coming back to my point before, it is interesting to me but also makes sense that the RMT seems to be the union that get the most kind of media, press, attention. I don't know what how that works in terms of an understanding of who's successful for their workers in the unions, like a union which is mainly based of sort of men... White old white men like it kind of does does for me like looking look from outwards looking in it's like okay so this is the union which gets the most prominence like for people that are kind of can be a bit skeptic of the unions but have a broader politics of of agreeing with with this it does some that there's that tension there which i think some people would like to see addressed a little bit more Absolutely. yeah i guess there is a massive issue of optics as well isn't there because if you look at who is in a trade union you're more likely to be in it if, if you're a female worker if you are yeah. that worker yeah. but then when you look at the leadership of these unions there's maybe one female mm. of like the prominent main unions who is a, is a woman and no current black leaders no. I think that is correct um, there's quite a lot of women general secretaries there yeah. now yeah. Mm. which is a, a major change from 10 years ago yeah, or 20 years ago yeah so things, things are changing but always too slowly we mm. seem to be behind the Tory party on yeah, diversity. Yeah. But I, I yeah. mean, as Liam said, the group that has the you know highest percentage of unionised workers within it is black women. Mm. And after that, I think it's white women, men following way behind. But we don't see that reflected in the press and the media at all. Um, so, yeah, I've always been a big supporter of seeing Mick Lynch mm. up there on the telly, but would love to see... <laughs> something that represents the real breadth of the union movement as well. The unions don't select what the media choose to put out. The uh, recent strikes this mm. week of Aslef and RMT got enormous pr prominence, but but the university lecturers, UCU or you, your former union, the IWGB, never gets a look in. I mean, they not never, but very rarely <laughs> in, in comparison. Or Liam's union, the CWU, the most enormous industrial dispute in that union's history, I would think, over the last year. A fight almost to the death, and yet you don't see it, even in the Financial Times, let alone the sort of more average dailies. So the, the, the media have, have, got, have selected stuff out things that affect them the most getting the train to work maybe yeah i think mm. there's two separate issues one is the media select obviously the mm. issues they think the public cares about which is the trains mm. and then two it is the higher representation within the unions mm. and the fact that the unions tend to have recognition in areas that are relatively well paid um which is a workforce which is white and it, as mm. you said lydia the harder work 
of organising precarious workers, which is often heavily racialised, isn't necessarily done by the big unions, either because they can't be asked or because they don't think it can be done. Yeah. Or, or they kind of leave it to the small, the yeah. more radical unions, yeah. which are heavily racialised. Organising in cleaners. I spoke to organisers from the bigger unions and they flat out said it's not possible. Like you're not going to be able to organise the cleaning workforce because they're too divided along lines of nationality, they're too precarious, they're too low paid. And they fundamentally like did not believe it was possible, which I think we showed was like absolute bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it is a prevailing view amongst maybe like an older established guard of the union movement. But they've been saying that it, since the 1880s when they I know. said that dock workers could never be organised. I know. Mm-hmm. I wish they'd change the record. The <laughs> dock strike of 1889. Yeah. yeah. Whenever someone tells you that a group of workers are not organisable, you just, Red just flag. tell them to shut up. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's also like a third point on what you just said, um, Liam, in that I think generally there's a culture in Britain of suffering, as in like make everyone suffer for as for as long as possible. I don't necessarily think it's a conscious thing that we want to that we engage in with culturally, but I think that there is a an idea that why would you strike? You need to just work hard, do what everyone else does. Why are you complaining? Why are you complaining? I think that there that culture of yeah, suffering and wanting people to effectively not wanting people to strive for more. I think that cuts across, and I also think that cuts across class and ethnicity as well. Like, I think there is a tendency for us to, as as a nation, small or large, you want to imagine that, but that we have this culture, yeah, of a race to the bottom. And I think that that really, really comes out during industrial action. I'd like to say that I'm always on the right side of that, but I don't think I always am. It's hard, like, engaging in the spirit of collectivity and the spirit of organising is such a praxis, isn't it? And it's really, really difficult. The wins are incredible. I think that's what makes this current wave of strike action so important because it is so public and there's like millions of days of strike action that are being lost um, at the moment, which represents hundreds of thousands of workers on strike. So a victory now could totally transform lots of people's views on what is actually possible. Like, I genuinely think that our, that viewpoint that we perhaps hold in this country comes from a total lack of belief that it can be different. Yes. And that we can actually make it different. And from my, like, experience organising in unions, the moment people go through that process of fighting and winning, you can't go back. You fundamentally changes your view of what is possible and what can be fought for. Yeah, I think that is a, a important point. I mean, the negative solidarity, I think, is what you're saying mm. is very real. And if I go home for the weekend, the anti-strike rhetoric from my family is mm. basically what you are saying. Um, and I think that's what you see of the RMT strike is that it's become, it's not financial anymore. The government even admitted it would have been cheaper for them to settle the dispute and just give them the pay rise. But it's become a symbolic, I think, moment of it mm. is either the workers can win or you, you accept your lot and carry on. Um, which is kind of mm. what you're saying, Lydia. So I think these have become like extremely like pivotal moments for the unions that they ha- they have to essentially win. Mm. I think Chantal puts her finger on an important point, though. My my dad always used to say, "There's no limit to the deference of the working class mm. in in Britain." And 
And we, li we live in a very hierarchical society. I mean, I don't want to go back to the coronation and so on, <laughs> but, it, but it is a very hierarchical si society. Absolutely. And I think the contrast with what's happening in France, where the resistance to uh, increasing the pension age to a pension age that we've virtually got in this country <laughs> is amazing. Millions of people who are not members of trade unions going out on strike and, uh, and onto the streets of every city, town and village in France to protest against mm. it. Uh, and Brit British people find it much harder to do, that, do those things because of the way that deference is, is the word has been inculcated in, into us that you know we're really not entitled to any more than we're, we're getting. And those that have succeeded have done it under their own steam, pulled themselves up by their own mm. bootstraps and, and so on. But uh, Lydia's absolutely right. You know, once you once you people get organised and feel their own strength, that's a different thing altogether. That's why the media, of course, never, never uh, covers the successes. Like the Fire Brigades Union uh, a couple of months ago, it was a, a really good settlement. They mm. got well above what's being offered to other public sector uh, workers, unified, well-organised threat of industrial action, and the government gave way. Not a word in the press about it, apart from the Morning Star. Also, this does kind of bring us back to, to maybe Thatcher for a little bit, in that she came into government with a plan to break the union movement. Yeah. This was like a well-established, well-thought-out system to change the culture of the UK. The Ridley Plan, I think, is what it was called, where she was like, we need to break a very symbolically powerful union and it's going to be the miners and when she first came into government she gave public sector workers a massive pay rise because she accepted that's where the kind of political wins were um, and then she slowly eroded that over time so I think the solidarity or lack of solidarity that we see at the moment mm. has a long history and it needs to be rebuilt which is what Lydia was saying from the ground up and you know unions working together which they don't often do if at all I mean we recently saw uh, the NEU, the National Education Union, receiving a huge fine from the TUC for organising uh, support staff, which the other unions claimed were their their territory, basically. These yeah. kind of actions, I think, are like the complete antithesis of what we need to be doing as a union movement. So there are issues, I think, within the unions that need resolving. Um, and I don't, I don't know, John, you would probably be best placed to comment on kind of, from my experience, which is obviously quite limited, the, the lack of willingness to work together within the unions to me seems absolutely insane like the some of the unions hate each other or they will refuse i've been in meetings where people will openly talk shit about especially the more radical unions this is something that we've spoken about quite a few times on surviving society about the left in general the unchecked ego of our broad coalitions within the unions, within the left media and whatever, I think is going to continue to cripple us. It's it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to see, like what Liam was saying, like people just not getting on in that way, even though we broadly agree on most things. And I do really believe that this is to do with a lack of interrogation of ego, both interpersonally and structurally. The need for uh, a collective approach is, is so obvious now isn't it we, we we need what used to be called a popular front we need we need unions to get together and unions to get together with all the other campaigns and groups on climate change on the environment on renting 
accommodation on on everything else that's being fought for a better standard of life for for people. We need to combine together to make a, a massive popular front. But it's it's easier said than done, isn't it? It, it really is easier said than done. That's been clear for for ages. The, yeah. the need for that and we're not any closer I don't think um, well there have been tentative steps haven't they you know the enough is enough movement and a rise and the people's assembly and so on but we need a, another initiative or an, an initiative that combines those in, in, and, and into which the, the unions have a, have a role I think there's been really great initiatives in terms of building um, rank and file consciousness or power like even just telling union members that it is really important that you build from the base and that you are critical of your leadership there's a great conference happening this summer of those leaders in their workplaces getting together from different unions to share knowledge and experience that's the troublemakers at work conference if anyone's (laughs) really interested in going it's going to be in manchester (laughs) uh, in july in terms of the question on ego I think this we find this wherever we are and it's the difficult thing about organizing at work which is very fundamentally different from organizing in other lefty spaces is that you don't choose who you organize with at all you know organizing at work means organizing with who you work for you can't choose that and so it becomes incredibly challenging for us who've only organized in left-wing spaces to um, confront different viewpoints get people on board, change their minds, um, which I find really important. But often you're organising with someone and you fundamentally don't disagree on loads of stuff. It's a huge challenge. I think that's important, Lydia. I guess when I was talking about the ego, I'm probably more talking about the the leadership. Yeah. And yeah, I think that one of the things that I think we should um, strive for or think really critically about is what makes us different from those that seek to cause division or that seek to accumulate capital without a redistribution of wealth like what are the things that make us different from those people and I would really like to think that it's community love um, solidarity and all those things have to be understood and interrogated alongside of ego the people that make capital make money through the antithesis of those things don't need to Mm. don't need to interrogate those things but what makes us different from those people is those things. Does that make sense? And I think that there is a real, the left and the trade union movement in general, I think, have got a long history of not necessarily doing that work. That is true, I think. And you recognise that mm. in a lot of a lot of left wing spaces, especially in the unions, I think the like jobs for the boys is quite an often <laughs> thrown around term where like people will shuttle between unions or shuttle between the Labour Party and the unions and kind of keep the power constrained within a very small space. Um, mm which does reflect, I guess, the need for what Lydia is saying in that the, often the members aren't active in their own unions. They'll get an email about a pay deal that's been negotiated about their involvement and they'll accept it year on year on year. And then when the time comes for a massive struggle, um, be it the CW fight with Royal Mail or, you know, the nurses, um, they they aren't organised enough to push back. Um and what you see with the RCN, the Royal College of Nurses, who were able to say no, mm. is that that was a years-long process. Is that the, the, the NHS workers say no campaign was set up years ago by those nurses and has been building kind of consciousness within the RCN outside of this dispute so that when the dispute came along, they were ready to like 
uh, coalesce and gather around De Novo. I guess the issue now for them, and we'll get into this in the NHS episode, is that the other unions have said yes, um, which brings us back to the point of needing to work together and how there must be some a better system of doing it than we have at the moment and that the unions are dragged to the to the weakest link, essentially, and that if one of those unions accept a significantly below inflation pay deal, then that is usually the case for everyone. Some of the content you've been putting out, Lydia, not you personally, but through Notes From Below, <laughs> um, then, which is, uh, you can describe what Notes From Below is, um, but your the most recent publication spoke a little bit about a uh, hot strike summer turning into shit deal spring. Um, <laughs> and what what you think the kind of significance of that is um and what how what you see is moving beyond that or like how what's the notes from below how does that play a role in that bringing those workers together yeah so, so um ed notes from below and one of the co-founders of a journal called notes from below um and what we fundamentally do is um worker writing so encouraging people in workplaces to write about their work about how they're fighting back at work to spread those ideas and um, spread their struggle to other sectors um, and our recent issue we've done on in and against the union so um, how we're operating how workers in their workplaces are organizing through their union to fight back against bad deals and um, low wages um, and then also how they're fighting within the union to force the leadership to reject bad deals to take them on more days of strike action so i think a dynamic that's incredibly important to recognize in this episode to frame the next few episodes um for those who aren't that um you know knowledgeable about unions is the dynamic between the union leadership and the membership um union leadership often as you mentioned the big egos um are in a position of receiving a lot of pressure from above from employers they're sitting in the room with employers they're negotiating with them um, and then they're also receiving pressure from below from members who want to fight for more who have the um, who want to go on strike and this kind of foot in each camp for the union leadership often lends itself to um, union leaderships with more conservative attitudes they have to keep the employer happy but they have to keep the members happy um, and they also want to ensure the continuation of the, the union in terms of um, they want to make sure the union keeps paying salaries, keeps ticking over. Um, and as I said, this can lead to some kind of conservative leanings. Um, so fundamentally, I think our job is then to build that pressure from below to um, ensure that that pressure continues the fight against this real term pay cuts. Um, and against this shit deal spring, as we've seen. And as you mentioned, the nurses' example is a, is a fantastic one of that. Pat Cullen, the general secretary of the nurses, literally on BBC News said, oh, I actually really um, underestimated my members and how much they really want to fight for this. And this is because the members got together and said, no, we want more. Go back and get us more and we'll go on strike to make it happen. Can I mention two other points? One, one is just going on from what Lydia just said, uh, sort of natural conservatism of trade union uh, leaders. I mean, that, that's, that's often the way when people in the left get into power. They find they're constrained by all sorts of forces and influences that they 
hadn't necessarily foreseen, but quite obvious to the outsider. But the trade unions have also, in this country anyway, have, have, have been affected by a sort of legacy of what, what's been dis, what's described as uh, business unionism. That's the idea that trade unions are, are simply service organisations representing, um, providing representation services to their members. And it's a very easy course for officials to take. It's a different thing if you're trying to organise a strike or actually fight for better terms and conditions. And of course, simply carrying out the task of representing members in disciplinaries or grievances and so on takes an enormous amount of, of time and doesn't leave a lot of room for uh, initiatives or responding to initiatives from, from members. And, and that's it's been a force really over the last 40 years or, or perhaps more it, and it's a big big thing in the in America where um, there have been massive upheavals in the trade trade unions very recently to throw off business unionism and come to mm. something a bit more radical what I'd love to know would be what it would take to for you to join a union or to like I'd love to know more about the view that people have of unions and what is preventing a younger kind of cohort of workers from joining so as an academic my union is ucu um and i would say that coming on to the points i mentioned earlier in the episode one of the issues i think members like myself black people um have is that some of the issues that people will go on strike on strike over seem very much stratified by gender and class and are rarely by race. Um, we have some of the largest inequities when it comes to um, eth- ethnic minorities within um, university uh, amongst university staff, and it rarely gets the attention or organising that it should. I think it's within the four fights now is that mm. BAME, or Black Asian Minority Ethnic um, uh, Pay and Representation. Sorry if I've got that wrong, but the reason why it's I'm, I'm kind of not giving it as much oomph as it should have is because it very much seems to be a kind of secondary and third issue. It seems like you can generate solidarity or... or or vast organising within our particular cohort of staff when it affects the majority of people within that. So what I mean by that is I think that because there are there are not as many of us, if racism doesn't affect your lived experience, mm. then I, it's, I think it's very hard for people to uh, reconcile with that or organise with that. And yeah, it's... It, it's appalling the number of black black women in particular and how we're how we're both treated and represented within university spaces so i think it yeah i think when it comes down to it it's it's often that feeling of um unacknowledgement whilst also we're doing a lot of the heavy lifting which is um often been the case when it comes to yeah the workplace families etc so yeah i think that I'm like all for the union like it's all we have as I say it's all we have like I I get it but again that lack of reflection I think amongst 
some of uh, my peers and colleagues um, in a meaningful way is that never stops being disappointing. I guess the the recurring theme throughout a lot of it is that those fights are harder. Yeah. And that the unions tend to through maybe no fault of their own through like legal frameworks choose the path of least resistance mm. so it's like okay we'll get a pay rise for this set of workers at the expense of a minority I or- think it's harder because they, they, it's not necessarily hard I think people make choices and I think it's always interesting is the choices that people make um, with regards to what is prioritised and what isn't and yeah it's cowardice yeah like definitely I think one issue we have when you're trying to get everyone a whole sector on strike Often people are like, oh, well, let's choose the issues that everyone cares about. Yes, that's what I'm talking, yeah. But I think they fundamentally misunderstand that, you know, the race pay gap, which is one of the four fights yeah. everyone does. Sorry, four fights. Thank you for... Yeah, yeah. No, um, um, but you can often, even though it is the four fights, some of them, like, conveniently get forgotten mm. in union communications and others get foregrounded. Um but I think that is like the cowardice and shows the weakness of the union movement. Mm. That if we were stronger and that if we were like really building at the base, then these incredibly fundamental issues could be pushed up the agenda more and more. But yeah, you're totally right. I can see that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that weakness is what leads us to, to focus on quick fixes. Yeah. Um, which often takes the form of looking to the Labour Party or looking to a policy solution and be like, these guys will come in and they'll save us. Mm. And then maybe they will, they probably won't, but they could, but they'll be gone in five years and then that policy solution will will change, which is what you see internationally with a lot of unions who have waited for, for you know, progressives to come in. They might change the law, uh, but that law will change back again if there's no power behind it, um, which I think is the danger at the moment, especially as we're running up to the next election is that a lot of union circles are, you know, banking on Starmer to to do some some good stuff. And he might, but he's not going to be there forever. And if the unions aren't organised themselves, then ultimately Mm. we'll be back to square one, I think. I think you're right. That short-termism, I think we're failing to learn the lessons of the past and that without having a cultural change structurally and personally about how we see people... And how we do actually stratify um, who has access to like basic dignities. If we're not doing that inward work, I I, I fear that this this what we're, all the things we're talking about now will continue. That's the nature of capitalism. Isn't it? <laughs> 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 we need a more yes. resolution to that problem. We do. <laughs> That's a bloody neat. John, can you can you give us a just before we finish? Can you give us some? Um, I don't know if you're allowed to share these, but can you share any kind of positive cases that you've like won for us to employment law, like things that sh- would give listeners some hope? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, you know we. One cases in the European Court of Human Rights that have, that have amplified the, the rights of trade unions and, and so on. But um, no, I'm always very conscious that if you win a win a, a trade union case, you know it's it's always on a very limited front. It's always a very minor um, in the great scheme of things. And you know, what we're really talking about is what Lydia mentioned at the beginning. It's, it's power. It's power mm-hmm. in the workplace. And, you know, law, lawyers don't change those things. No, court cases don't, don't change those things. Court cases may make it worse if employers can get injunctions or massive awards or damages against uh, unions. But, um, 
I don't think legal cases are really uh, the answer. I mean, they're, they're very interesting for the lawyers involved. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I don't want to denigrate the role of the law altogether because it's absolutely crucial that, that we fight again for the legal space for trade unions to have the legal capacity in order to fight for and defend their their members and we haven't got it at the at the present time i mean chantal was talking earlier about uh, divisions between workers and so on shouldn't forget the the legal structural problems that exacerbate that make it worse the fact that Unions can only organise industrial action between in a dispute between workers and their own employer, so that all forms of, of uh, industrial action in support of a, a dispute with another employer are absolutely outlawed. I mean, this makes for wow. atomisation. This makes it impossible for, for workers to support each, each other. So one of the things that, that I've been arguing for really for decades, me and my colleague Keith uh, Ewing, is we must restore sectoral collective bargaining, which is really a term of art, of course. Oh, Carl, <laughs> you've got to break this down for us, John. Yeah, yeah. So this is the ability of unions to represent all the uh, workforce within a particular industrial sector, whether that's delivery riders or parcel uh, delivery or whatever, no matter who the employer is, minimum terms and conditions negotiated by unions on behalf of all the workers in that sector, which would mean, of course, that those workers should have the power to take industrial action on a sector-wide uh, basis. And this is one of the things that we've lost. If I just mm. take a moment over to go back over history, if you go back to the 1970s, I know it's nearly 50 years ago, and none of you guys remember it, but I do. If you go back to the 1970s, uh, uh, in 1976, 86% of workers in this country had their one or more of their terms and conditions of employment negotiated by a trade union, a collective agreement. 86%, more than eight out of every 10 workers. That percentage now is is around 23%, which means that three quarters of the workers in this country don't have the benefit of a collective agreement, don't have a trade union to represent them, and their terms and conditions are at the diktat of, of the employer. It's, it's take it or leave it. If you, if you don't want the job on those terms and conditions, go, go elsewhere. That is really what has so depressed the wages, terms and conditions in this country. That's why we've got so many people in precarious em employment uh, and uh, 14 million people living below the poverty line, of 5 million of which are, are children. That's the basic reason. It's been the collapse of collective bargaining. And of course, as collective bargaining has diminished, so has trade union membership. We've now got half the number of trade union members that we had in the 19. Uh, 1970s, which makes this current wave of industrial action all the more important, all the more significant for what, for what it is. Boom. I really enjoyed the John monologue. Oh, sorry. No, big <laughs> history no, lesson. Amazing. That was incredible. We I can't believe it. Just, we need to know the history. Yeah. God, we need so we need sectoral collective bargaining. That's what we need. <laughs>
I want to end on a positive note. I feel like we've been quite negative today. No, no, no. It's been, but not it's in been a bad nuanced. way. In yeah. like a really good political way education. to interrogate the union movement and the his, you know, some of it that comes out is quite negative. But I think we can take those negatives and really like make a positive mm. and learn from the history and the current moment and get involved and fight for so much more. So I think I'm really interested to hear the other episodes of the podcast because mm. I think, as I said earlier, this is going to be a really important fight. And I do feel more confident that you know we can win it and come away with a union movement that is ready to fight for the future. Because if we don't, <laughs> who will? Who will? Who exactly? Will? And God knows what will happen. <laughs> Lydia. John, Liam, thank you so much. That was brilliant. We'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.